1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I am here with Barbara Keys. She is a professor of U.S. and international history at Durham University and the editor and an author in uh, just a fascinating new uh, volume called The Ideals of Global Sports, or Global Sport, pardon me, From Peace to Human Rights, uh, out from University of Penn Press in 2019. Thank you very much for joining us, Barbara.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Keith.
1: Barbara, I have to tell you, I, I, I love this book um, and, I, and I wanna get into talking more about the book, but first I, I, I think, um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your bio and how you got into sports studies.
0: Yeah, okay. So um, I'm an American by birth and I grew up in the fabulous city of San Francisco but I've had the great privilege of becoming an Australian citizen and of having worked at the University of Melbourne for 14 years, and then more recently moving to the north of England. In fact, as I talk to you, I'm looking at my window at the gorgeous Durham Cathedral, which uh, dates back to 1096. So having had the experience of Living for extended periods of time and really being embedded in three different countries has been really enriching for someone who is interested in international relations. Um, There is a downside, and I think most migrants would agree with me, that uh, once you leave your home country, you're no longer at home there, but you're also not at home in your new countries. (laughs) So I feel a bit like I live my life as an anthropologist, and I'm always seeing the strangeness and the constructedness of the cultures around me. In terms of my professional interests, I was very strongly influenced by my graduate advisor at Harvard, Akira Irie, who of course is one of the great pioneers of intercultural relations. And he got me interested in intercultural relations. The path from that broad interest into uh, my dissertation, which was about sport history, uh, international sport relations in the 1930s, was largely accidental. Uh, And I think the historian Martin Conway described the process of uh, professional evolution beautifully in a recent piece on how he became a historian. He said he wrote that it happened in the manner of a paper bag caught in a breeze. So it was just sort of (laughs) being buffeted by various considerations. One of those considerations was that sport at the time was a new topic for international history. And of course, what you're looking for in a dissertation is to do something new. But many and probably even most sport historians come to the topic because they're sports fans. And I have a kind of, I'm not really a sports fan. I have been caught up in in sports crazes now and again. But I I have a more anthropological detachment to the kind of enormous passion that many people bring to sport. And I wanted to give a great example of of this sort of anthropological view of sport from Bruce Kidd, who was, of course, one of the leading uh, sports scholars and a former Olympian, he once suggested this thought experiment. You imagine a major city, and you imagine all the sports stadiums with their enormous parking lots, the television time, the advertising money spent on sports, the level of interest and attention from ordinary people, the hours of chit-chat at the water coolers and bars, the bedding, you Take all that, and you imagine that in that city, instead of all that time and money and space and energy that we devote to male professional sports, imagine instead that that city used all that time and money and space to celebrate some kind, I'm not sure what, but some kind of artistic or physical endeavor that was done solely by women, which kind of boggles the mind, right? I mean, a simple exercise like that where you defamiliarize what we take for granted, which is that we devote a lot of time and energy and money to male sports, I think that kind of defamiliarization can be really revealing. And it, it is sort of what I I guess I would say I aim to do as a historian, and what history does really well, is to make us realize that the present is constructed and the product of accident a product of contingency. It doesn't have to be the way it is.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And um, that's one of the things I think uh, that comes out so clearly in this book, in fact, is uh, that many of the ideas and uh, truths that we hold about the Olympics um, and about international sport more broadly um, just aren't true at all. <laughs> right. um So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit uh, about how you, how you developed this project. It's an edited volume. There are, um, I think 10 chapters um, or nine chapters uh, and each one takes on different themes and we'll, we'll work through them to, you know, as, as we're chatting a little bit here, Uh, but I'm wondering if you just give us the the broad scope. How did you come up with this idea?
0: I had left sport behind after the first book and moved into human rights history and, I was actually very glad to leave sport history um, behind because I think the field in many respects is very insular. And I wanted to reconnect with wider trends in the history of, uh, in in history. And at the time I I hadn't planned to, to go back into sport history ever. But at the time that I had been writing my first book or finishing it, turning it into a book, it came out in 2006, it was, it was right before the 2008 Beijing Olympic Games. And there was a lot of controversy over human rights at those games. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch were putting out all these reports about human rights abuses in China and suggesting that the International Olympic Committee needed to press China for reform. So, I mean, I, I was sort of imprinted with the notion that this topic that I had been working on, sport, was intimately connected to human rights. But then as I spent the next decade working in human rights history, I never saw human rights historians talking about sport. Now, I mean, never might be a slight exaggeration, but it was really striking that to my mind, this really major global debate had happened, and it had done nothing to affect what human rights historians were interested in writing about. Um, The one exception is the Italian historian Umberto Tulli, who has written some stuff on the relationship between human rights movements and international sport. So part of what I wanted to do with this edited volume, The Ideals of Global Sport, was to try to convince human rights historians that they were missing an important part of the terrain. And I'm sure that listeners will know how every book about the Olympic games begins with the stats, about how many people around the world watch or partake, how the Olympics are the most widely popular global festival, et cetera, et cetera. And the cultural production of that scale and significance was continually getting embroiled in human rights issues was, to my mind, something that human rights historians would benefit from uh, talking about. And there was a, a second impetus for the book, which in its own way also came from my human rights scholarship, because it was quite striking that the human rights scholarship devotes a lot of time and space to unpacking what exactly human rights ideals are. The different ways that different people and different groups have interpreted them, and the particular specific influences that those ideals have had at different moments in time in different places. I I just didn't see anything comparable in sport history. Despite the manifest similarities between, you know, human rights idealism and international sport idealism have many uh, commonalities. So I thought there was a need for a book that explained what the core ideals of of international sport have been over the last century and a half, roughly, where they came from, how they developed, and how specifically they had influenced various struggles over the course of the 20th century. So the first half of the book covers what I see as the core ideals, which are uh, peace, mutual understanding slash friendship, non-discrimination, and democracy. And then the second half looks at how human rights has become part of that pantheon. There are other ideals that have been associated with the Olympics and with international sport more broadly in in recent decades. But I think those are, are, to my mind, the core ones.
1: And uh, before we get started talking about all those um, ideals, because I think we, we obviously have to move in that way. Another thing I'd want listeners to know about this book is that many of the people, many of the other authors in this book are not historians. So I was wondering if you wanted to talk at all about, you know, how you decided, um, you know, how you got the whole group of people together. How did you decide that this actually, you know, this is, shouldn't just be a kind of historical project, this needs to be a kind of, you know, interdisciplinary project.
0: So I was, I was more interested in bringing in people who had not written about sport than I was in bringing in people from different disciplines. And the choice of authors was driven more by, you know, I came up with a list of topics that I thought needed to be covered. And one of the great things about this volume from my perspective as an editor was that people were willing willing to write bespoke pieces for it. It wasn't like just a compilation of what people were already researching. People sat down and said, okay, I'm I'm gonna figure this topic out for the purpose of this volume. And as I came up with the list, I was thinking, well, who, out there is working on these topics or writing around them so just for example rob skinner is a historian but he's never written about sport he's a, one of the leading historians of anti-apartheid movements and i thought he would be the you know a great person to say given that anti-apartheid is the uh, sort of signature anti-discrimination effort of international sport if I asked him to write about sport and, and, uh, anti-discrimination. And I, I am also really excited by the fact that the authors do come from all over the world. It's not just, uh, you know, Western centric. So Renata Nagamina from Brazil is a, is a legal scholar and now Henrique, Henrique Roriz is her, uh, co-author also from Brazil is a political scientist. And they are really embedded in, um, in the um, Rio, they were in Rio at the time of the Olympics, they, they really were embedded there, they read the Portuguese language newspapers, and and really, I think, brought a, a quite different perspective than the usual uh, sort of perspective we might see.
1: Yeah, that was, I mean, for me, um, there were a lot, just a lot of different perspectives on offer in, in your book. Uh, I guess that does bring us to this question of, these core ideals, you've kind of laid them out. um, Peace, friendship and mutual understanding, anti-discrimination and democracy or democratization. How did these, not not putting it back on our historian hats, I guess, how did these core ideals form? At what point in time do um, they become part of this Olympic mythology? How does this get constructed, as you were saying?
0: I think peace is the only one that's been there from the beginning. It's is part of the milieu of the late 19th century. And um, I think Dietmar Quantz, among others, has been really good about, um, has had some really important things to say about the way that the Olympics in particular, but, but international sport more generally, emerged in the context of peaceful internationalism in the late 19th century. And there was this idea that if people met each other, if they talked and traveled and got to know other cultures that somehow that would result in mutual understanding and friendship. And that in turn would produce peace. So I guess I would say, I, I said peace was the only one there from the beginning. I'd say mutual understanding and, and friendship is also there and integrated with the idea of peace. Non-discrimination comes in a bit later, mostly after the end of world war II. And it would be kind of ridiculous to have non-discrimination be embedded in the ideals of international sport at the end of the 19th century when racism, you know, scientific racism is at its peak. But after World War II, it becomes the case that you, you can't um, justify that kind of discrimination and anti-discrimination then gets embedded in the Olympic Charter and becomes part of the, the sort of rhetoric. Um, Democratization is a little bit trickier. I would say it's been less prominent. It's uh, one of the things that, that was really part of the American embrace of international sport, that Americans would introduce sports to uh, colonies or countries where they had a lot of influence with the idea that, you know, baseball would democratize the country. Uh, And then more recently with the controversies over the fact that the Olympics are often being held in dictatorships um, and especially after the Seoul Olympic games in 1988, where arguably the staging of the Olympics there in 1988 played an important role, and my con- contributor, uh, Jun Xia Kong, disputes um, exactly how much of a role, but basically the, the idea is that the eyes of the world were on Seoul, and so the South Korean dictatorship chose reform rather than repression in 1988 because of that global uh, pressure, the the global spotlight being on it uh, from the Olympic Games. So in a sense, the, the myth becomes that South Korea democratizes in part because of the Olympic Games, and you see that trope repeated in nineteen. Sorry, in two thousand and eight, people are saying, "Well, you know, the same sort of thing could happen in China, even though the circumstances are completely different in China."
1: Yeah, that's um, one of the thing that one of the things that listeners or readers will have to understand about the work is that um, your your you and your co authors are not interested in. Um, Discussing so much um, in an uncritical way how these things are linked to the Olympics. You're not drinking the Olympic Kool Aid. You're not drinking the FIFA Kool Aid. It's a very critical um, examination of how these ideas um, might work. And that that essay uh, by Jun Sukong on democracy and democratization is like the perfect example where um, they just say essentially, no, actually, this the the Olympics uh, don't do this at all. <laughs> right. Seemingly. Um, but one of the more fascinating chapters for me because it's so complicated is uh, Robert Skinner. So I, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about, talk to us a little bit about, about this kind of very famous case of anti-discrimination um, in, in, in the Olympics and the um, anti-apartheid movement. And what's going on there? Is there a case to be made then for international sport working towards anti-discrimination?
0: Yes, well, Richard Pound, who is a longtime IOC member uh, and a Canadian and, and someone about whom a biography really needs to be written, Richard Pound wrote this book um, about the Olympic Games in which he talked about, he had a chapter on ideals, <laughs> and his one case was South Africa. So this is the one thing, of all his decades in the, in the Olympic industry, this is the one case he could come up with as, a, as an example of the Olympics um, living up to its ideals. So listeners will probably know that a lot of sports historians have written about the sports boycotts that were part of the anti-apartheid movement for decades, 60s, 70s, 80s. And some of those historians and um, political scientists have suggested that sports boycotts played a significant role in undermining white rule in South Africa. But Rob Skinner addresses a different issue in his chapter So we know very well, it's been well established, that the IOC was basically forced into excluding South Africa in the 1960s, officially in 1968, because of a serious boycott threat. So the exclusion of South Africa from the Olympics was undertaken under pressure. It wasn't undertaken because of any moral revulsion about apartheid. It wasn't undertaken from any sense that apartheid violated the non-discrimination clause in the Olympic Charter. And Rob details how sport became what he calls a political resource in a much broader set of struggles, not only about anti-apartheid, but about anti-racism, decolonization, the remaking of the world after empire. And I think Rob, as an outsider to sport, brings a sense of how much those larger struggles, which is what he has been studying, those larger struggles are what really remade uh, the debate about sport. So in other words, sport was not an independent terrain that itself exerted any moral power in this struggle. Sport's just buffeted by these other forces, uh, the decolonization of the world and and the attendant discrediting of of racial hierarchy. But at the same time, because sport became a place that activists tried to invest with meaning as an anti-racist space, they were arguing that it should be anti-racist, the power of that ideal did get strengthened. And in fact, it comes to be one of the things that people know about sport, about the Olympics, which is that they should not be places of discrimination, which is that they are ostensibly not places of discrimination. Um, But what Rob Rob doesn't really elaborate on this point, but I think South Africa was really an aberration. No other countries, unexcluded from the Games, In any kind of similar similar set of of circumstances what happens in in this case was a unique product of a global constellation of forces in which south africa became a global pariah and we're not going to see that happen again and in fact in in other cases although the the rhetoric of anti-racism and anti-discrimination remains prominent if you look at what the IOC or what um, the International Soccer Federation FIFA, what they're doing about uh, to, to actually make anti-racism real, uh, the efforts are pretty tepid.
1: Yeah, I have to admit, I was reading this chapter and thinking about the kind of effort that athletes have been making um, in fighting discrimination um, in the United States and, uh, and around the world, thinking about the possibilities for athletic anti-discrimination uh, and the actions that they've taken and how that's just impossible <laughs> uh, under the rules that, that the IOC wants to to control Olympics with and rule 50 in particular. So I was, this is a little bit, um, uh, not dismayed, I don't think is the word I want to use, but just uh, as you say, thinking about these different possibilities and, and maybe South Africa being a one-off.
0: yeah well, rule 50 is, is a human rights issue. It's about free speech. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's been the case that it, especially in recent months with the Black Lives Matter protests, the global protests, um, this is much more of a point of controversy between the IOC and athletes than it has been ever before, really. And, and this dates back to the 1950s when the American Avery Brendage, was in charge of the International Olympic Committee. And it was under him that they put a rule in the Olympic charter that banned political demonstrations. And that then morphed into the current Rule 50, which for, for those listeners who don't know, says that no kind of demonstration or political, religious or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic venue. And of course, we know the IOC has interpreted this rule as a prohibition on any symbol like a rainbow pin, any gesture, like that famous Black Power salute, the raised fists of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the Mexico City Olympics in 1968, for which they were expelled from the Olympic Village. Um, and a lot of athletes are feeling right now like, like they are very little inclined to let the ISE tell them that they can't use their platforms to combat racism. So uh, the pandemic has sort of put this issue a little bit on the back burner, but if we do have a Tokyo Olympic games in this coming Northern summer, then we will definitely see that emerge as a major, major point of contention. And it really, as I said, uh, it's kind of about human rights.
1: Absolutely, and I, I wanna I want to go there next. I'll point out, um, there's also in that first section on core ideals, uh, really interesting work um, by Simon Creek and Roland Burke, Simon writing about friendship and mutual understanding, kind of pulling apart um, Some of what that actually might mean in in the context of olympic games differentiating between social friendship and political friendship i actually found that really uh rich as well um and and uh burke's work looking at at the kind of olympic truce um but then the second half of the book i think um is is moves to on a quite different beat and that that's the section you kind of take the you t- you take the four with the first essay, and you're talking about the rise of human rights discourse in sports. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what is what is human rights discourse in sport, where it emerges, and, and then um, then we'll talk more about uh, your your essay. Hopefully,
0: I think that's my traffic noise here. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, sorry. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> Toward the end, well, I guess toward, toward the end of my, my second project, which was about human rights, I started to think about doing just a couple of articles about human rights in sport, just because it hadn't been done. It seemed to me this urgent need to, to like talk about this. And I, I went to this conference in 2014. I was invited to Seoul, South, South Korea, as part of this kind of Olympic-related conference at which there were a number of people from the Olympic industry there. Uh, IOC members, people from Olympic Solidarity and, and other organizations like that. And, and I was really struck by the fact, I had this paper, it was titled something like Human Rights at the Olympic Games. And a, like three of those people associated with the Olympic industry, one IOC member and then two Olympic Solidarity people, they came up to me after my talk and they said, you know, I had seen your title in the program and I didn't know what you were going to talk about, Human Rights at the Olympics, I didn't know what that meant. And I really wish I had followed up with them more about their puzzlement, because their puzzlement really puzzled me because there'd been, as I I already said, there's all this controversy over 2008. There was the LGBT rights controversy in 2014. A lot of talk about human rights, uh, again, in connection with the bidding process for the 2022 Olympics. It was like, to me, as a human rights historian, it was all over the place. And I don't really have any evidence to explain why, Olympic people were pu- pu- puzzled in, in 2014, but I would guess that they had a quite well articulated vision of what the Olympic ideals were. And the buzzwords then were things like sustainability, legacy, um, peace, always peace, Olympic truce, et cetera. And they just hadn't put human rights into that pantheon yet. But it was already, by 2014, it was in the process of joining the Pantheon. And I think it has a lot to do with the 2014 controversies, but also about uh, Thomas Bach, the new IOC president, um, his sense that the IOC needs to reform and his decision to make human rights part of that reform process. So certainly by 2018, we do see the Olympic movement, the Olympic industry, basically really embracing human rights and seeing that they can get a lot of leverage from talking about human rights, and they they realize, I think for the first time, they realize that human rights is a very capacious language and can sort of mean whatever you want. So it's not going to restrict them in the ways that they had feared for a long time. But I really, um, in my um, historical account of why this, uh, you know, this process of human rights becoming embedded in Olympic discourse, I find that the really key turning point was 1993. So there's certainly talk about human rights around the 1936 Berlin Olympics. People do use the term human rights, not very much, but it's there. And then in the late 70s, before the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, we do see human rights groups talking about human rights and Soviet repression of dissidents in particular as a reason why the Soviet Union is not fit to host the games in 1980, but it's not—it's not big; it, it, it's not huge. It's really not huge. I think "huge" is the right word for 1993. But what happens in 1993 is Beijing bids for the 2000 Olympic Games, and 1993 is just four years after the Tiananmen Square massacre, and it's also in a period where human rights—you know—we have, we have the end of the Cold War. We have the disappearance of the Soviet Union, which has been considered to be you know, perhaps the major human rights violator for many. And, and China is just out there not accepting what many people in the West see as the victory of human rights, that we're all going to suddenly now embrace human rights and it's going to be our moral language for the world. And China just won't go along, won't apologize for Tiananmen Square, et cetera. And so it just seems very galling to human rights activists of a certain stripe, that Beijing is bidding for the Olympic Games in 1993. And Human Rights Watch in particular goes on this huge campaign, really, really big campaign for them. They write letters to IOC members, to corporate sponsors of the Olympics, and more than anything else, they mount a media campaign. They get a lot of press attention, arguing that it's uh, inappropriate to host the Olympic Games in a country that has just committed this massacre and also continually violates human rights in, in very significant ways. And so you see at that point, at least human rights watch and some other human rights groups are seeing the potential in mobilizing around the Olympic games. And to some extent, they're doing it out of self-interest as well as, you know, a, a sense of idealism because they're looking for new audiences. They're always looking for media attention. And the Olympics turns out to be a great way to get media attention. Now, the IOC is not, does not know how to react to this, doesn't know how to deal with it, is very confused by the idea that it should care about whether China is torturing political dissidents. It's staging a sports event. It just wants to be left alone to do the sports. And you know these sports events are supposed to lead to peace, but, but they're not supposed to be um, dealing with human rights situations in the, in the whole country. From their point of view. That's politics. And of course, we know that the mantra for the um, IOC has always been that sport and politics don't mix, even though they are always intertwined. So by the time Beijing bids again in 2001, this time for the 2008 games, both the Chinese organizers and the IOC are aware that they need to do better at talking about human rights. And so there's considerably more talk about how there will be better observance of human rights issues around the the 2008 Games. At the same time, the IOC is clearly very still uncomfortable with the idea. And, uh, for example, Nicholas McBalen, who was working in the Hong Kong Office of Human Rights Watch at that time and had meetings with the IOC and dealt with the IOC and wrote a lot of the human rights reports about the Olympics he said that, you know, from one day to the next, you could not figure out what the IOC's position was going to be. One day it was, yes, we're going to have some reforms. The next day it was, no, that's politics and sport and politics don't mix. So they were sort of uh, schizophrenic. And they, I think they just really couldn't deal with the, the, the concept that they should have such extraordinary responsibilities about um, the political system in the country, in the host country. But as I said, they do come around to it much more recently and now there's this huge flurry of of, um, really tight embrace between groups like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and FIFA and um, the IOC. So those big organizations, IOC and FIFA, have set up all of these human rights bodies. They've got commissions, they've got people advising them. Um, Just in March, the IOC committed to setting up a human rights unit a human rights committee, and adopting a comprehensive human rights strategy, which will, quote, embed respect for human rights in global sports governance. And then there are all these other bodies, um, non-governmental bodies, like the IOC, but but purely in human rights, that had now set up just to deal with sport. So there's a, a Center for Sport and Human Rights, for example, founded in 2018. So the intersection is now deeply um, embedded. I mean, the human rights is now very much part of the language of international sport. Um, but as I as I already said, it's a language that's very flexible. And one of the great things about the, the chapter on the on the Rio Games, to my mind, was that it really showed how FIFA and the IOC were both talking about human rights, both in the in the case of the World Cup in in Brazil and then the twenty. 16 rio olympic games everybody is talking about human rights but fifa and the ioc mean something very limited by it and everybody else means something much broader so they're basically talking because human rights there are lots of different human rights everybody's focusing and claiming that the priority should be a different set of human rights
1: yeah that was one of the parts um especially in 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 the in the chapter on brazil but also in your chapter in particular um that i think that this second half of the book does really well which is that it takes um not only the perspective of of the ioc for example but also treats as serious actors who are working strategically the human rights groups themselves um who are often as you say kind of um you know negotiating a, a range of their own desires and needs not only to meet whatever their human rights objectives are but also um to you know appeal to to people to have a broader um broader audience and also to not look foolish as right. one of the things that struck me in your piece in particular was that human rights laws and amnesty international realized that uh, in 2001 uh, that beijing was going to win Right. <laughs> so, they were like well we can't go full on as we did in 1993 because then we'll just look stupid Right. i right. mean that, you didn't put it in so few words <laughs> right. but um yeah so i wonder if you can talk i mean you also uh, at one point in the book i think you're quoting somebody else talked about human rights as a as 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 this capacious term and so I've, you're definitely quoting somebody else i'm pretty sure when you when somebody else had called it an empty signifier so i i, w- right. I want to use I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how these human rights groups, um, you know, from their own perspective, came to sport. Why did it suddenly become so attractive a possibility for them? Um, And and how have they tried to, how have they had to negotiate within this context of the IOC, which is sometimes receptive, sometimes not receptive?
0: Right. Well, I do want to emphasize that there's nothing nefarious about the fact that human rights organizations want to. Get media attention and grow and, and get more donors. That's a perfectly normal thing that all organizations do. Um, I think it's it's this sort of myth that they are supposed to be purely altruistic and not care about themselves uh, that, that that gets us into thinking, you know, that it's somehow wrong for them to be self-interested when it's it's perfectly natural for them to be self-interested. And I think You can see that self-interest operating, again, perfectly normally um, and reasonably in the case of Human Rights Watch in 1993. They're undergoing an internal crisis. Uh, Their old executive director has resigned. Uh, They have a sort of chaotic management style and they're trying to unify these different human rights, sorry, sorry, unify these different watch groups that had been separate and create a single overarching identity The Cold War has ended. They're kind of trying to get their feet around this new new world they're dealing with. And when they try out human rights, they find that people bite, the media bites, and they get a lot of attention. So it just makes sense for them to continue um, because they can help get their message out by piggybacking on the Olympics. And, you know, there are more similarities than you might think between groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch on the one hand, and FIFA and the IOC on the other hand. Now, <laughs> FIFA and the IOC have a lot more money, of course. Um, they're dealing with billions and billions of dollars. But, um, but these are non-go- international non-governmental organizations. They are non-democratic. They're not accountable to anyone in particular. They have, to some extent, you know, legitimacy problems. And that's been more true lately for human rights organizations, especially Amnesty and Human Rights Watch. They've been criticized for being too heavy handed in the work that they do elsewhere, not paying enough attention to local groups. And the whole project of human rights is now being questioned. Critics are saying, look, human rights has been the dominant moral language of the world for decades. And what has it achieved? Actually, arguably not very much. So the fact that human rights groups are now partnering may to be a little bit too strong of a word, but they're working closely with international sports organizations in a way that helps bolster the legitimacy of both sides. They're, they're helping the IOC and to some extent FIFA um, legitimize what they do as doing something good for the world while they are getting more attention for, you know, being, um, human rights proponents. And I think, you know, the embrace of human rights does help legitimize the Olympic industry. there have been a lot of problems, you know, between Russian doping and holding it in dictatorships and uh, the sheer scale, the money, um, the level, a certain degree of corruption. And if human rights is the global moral lingua franca of our time, it, it really makes sense for the world of international sport to embrace it and to start talking about it. And because there are so many pressures on international sport to deflect criticism and and because the scale of of these events basically demand that we believe that they bring something else to the world other than mere entertainment and other than a mere celebration of human physical achievement, promoting human rights is an obvious move. And to some extent, they're able to do that relatively comfortably now after this long process of trying to figure out what it all means, they think they can do it by focusing largely on human rights of athletes. And they'll say, for example, human rights is something, there's a human right to sport, not in the, not in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but in the, in the Olympic Charter. And the idea is that, you know, the Olympics are doing a lot to foster the embrace of sport and physical activity by people all around the world, not just elite athletes, but people all around the world. So um, there's more investment in this concept called sport for development and peace, which basically means that you set up sport programs in underdeveloped countries. And then you say that you're fostering both development and peace through these sports programs, not much evidence in support of that. um, But the idea is somehow that um, I think the international sports organizations feel that they're promoting human rights if they're helping athletes, whereas the human rights organizations like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch want them to do much, much more about everybody, the whole population of the world, really.
1: Yeah, and that's, um, you know, the theme of many of the other um, pieces in this section on the, the second half of your book and the rise of human rights, um, whether it's Jules Boykoff's work uh, on Olympic Games in developed countries, which I think um, we'll, we can talk about here in a, in a second. Um, really critiques um, the idea that you can even have one of these mega events without inflicting some kind of human rights violations or uh, to the idea of, you know, back to the idea of the Brazilian games where just um, human rights organizations and the sporting organizations were speaking completely different and sometimes kind of contradictory languages about what human rights even means, Uh, I think, you know, there's, there, that's one of the things that your that this book, that your book brings out most clearly, is that um, sometimes we're all using the same language, but we don't at all mean the same thing. And right. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit because we, we're, I, and I think a lot of our conversation generally, not not speaking about your conversation, but our our conversation around the games generally, as historians or commentators on on sport, is that. Uh, these are problems in um, in non-democratic states or in authoritarian states. Um, and, and I think in in your volume, Dmitry Dubrovsky's piece is really interesting for showing the ways in which the Moscow 90, uh, 1980 games and the Sochi twenty fourteen uh, games were poss- were times when actually maybe repression of dissidents increased rather than decreased. But is it is that also true in? Democratic states, the United States, Canada, um, what's going on there?
0: Yeah, Jules Boykov wrote that chapter on um, human rights and Olympic games in democracies. He's quite a trenchant critic of the Olympic industry. He's both a scholar and an activist and, and I commend his writings to your listeners. They're really great. In his piece from my volume, he looks at the Olympics that have been held in democracies in the last two decades from Atlanta in 1996 to London in 2012, and he shows a a pattern, and this is true everywhere. The Olympics require the building of new venues, and that means clearing, you know, space for those venues, and that means typically some level of forced evictions, or at least affronts to due process and, and property rights, and that's pretty much universal, that's just part of the Olympic Games. But also what happens is the suppression of free speech and the right to assemble. So Jules talks about how in uh, Vancouver, ahead of the 2010 Winter Olympics, the city of Vancouver essentially criminalized anti-Olympic dissent. And then there's the sort of gentrification that occurs, um, cleaning up the cities before the games are held. So for example, Jules uh, talks about how in 1995, in 1996, before the Atlanta Olympics, the city arrested 9,000 homeless people, often without due cause, and essentially in an effort to harass them into leaving the city. So what he exposes in his chapter is all the semi undersides, that the human rights violations, in a sense, um, that go on in host cities, even when those host cities are in really nice democracies like Canada. And this is one of the reasons why there is, I think, a growing movement to just have the Olympics in one city permanently and not have them move around. Because moving them around is incredibly expensive. And even just that expense means that other human rights issues aren't being addressed because you're spending money on staging the Olympics rather than devoting it to, say, uh, social issues.
1: Yeah, I um, for my own uh, for my own interest, would have loved to see um, what Jules would have had to say about the Sydney Games, since I live in Sydney now. Oh, right. But um, certainly the uh, displacement of people away from certain parts of the city, the construction of, some of the, the transportation links out to the Olympic Park, and now subsequently the terrible construction that's happened there that's um, become kind of oh it nothing is really that bad in Sydney I guess but uh, uh, a less desirable part of the city to live in I guess is, mm-hmm. is, right. I would have loved to I would have loved to hear more because it would have been very very contrary to what um, most Sydney siders think about the games and of course this is the, the um, we're right around the, t- uh, the 20th anniversary of the game so the right. press here is non-stop um,
0: uh-huh.
1: It just uh, celebration of what Sydney once was, especially since things have been so quiet since COVID.
0: And yeah, um, sure it's closed its borders, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Done, um, we, we, human rights discussions for another day, maybe. <laughs> right. um, yeah, at any rate. Um, so I, I have some kind of more general questions, too, that, like, I, to things that I was thinking about when, I mean, uh, when I was reading, um, The book in general which is um one of the things that i think a lot of your authors are doing is kind of shining a light on what once they shine the light on it seems like some pretty obvious problems that if you've paid attention to the olympics or paid attention to fifa you'd you'd recognize but nonetheless i think you know people still believe in this kind of olympic magic so i wonder if you can kind of parse a little bit what's going on there is there some special Olympic sauce that gets put out into the air? We all know that you know people get displaced. We all watched um, what happened uh, in South Africa for FIFA or what happened in Brazil for the Olympics. We all know that they're in Sochi and then maybe twenty twenty two in Beijing again. Why do we keep believing that there's this you know that the Olympics are about human rights, that the Olympics are about peace, they're about democracy, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, that's not a problem that's unique to the Olympic Games. Human rights, in some respects, has that same problem because it's it's been the case that for decades, at least since the end of the Cold War, it has been the way we've expressed our moral aspirations for the world, the primary language, and yet there's been very little evidence to show that it works. Uh, yet we've believed it. So I think actually um, one of the the book that has influenced the way I think about the Olympics is a book about human rights. It's about um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as myth. And it is by Jessica Reinbold. So she has this conception of the universal human rights program as a myth. It's not stated as, the the claims about human rights were not stated as testably true. They weren't made as claims whose veracity matters. They're posed instead as unequivocal assertions that require no evidence and brook no disagreement. They are beyond questioning. So they they come into the world as a myth that is not about enumerating a list of rights, but rather the purpose of this human rights project was to build expectations about how the world should operate. And those expectations Reinbold says were affective in, affective meaning emotional she says they they draw on social aesthetic and religious logics and she says they constitute a narrative that's basically designed to generate meaning and solidarity so I think it's in that sense that we might benefit from studying the ideals of international sport not just in the sense that we we can disprove them and and show the hypocrisy or the gap between the ideals and the reality, but to look at what function the myth serves. It's not out there to be tested. And one of the observations I make in the book is that there, there have been longstanding claims that international sport fosters peace and not a single scholarly article ever dedicated to testing that claim. Now, there's a huge literature on testing the claim that democracies don't go to war with each other. So political scientists and IR specialists are interested in testing claims about what, what factors promote peace. If there was a legitimate case to be made that sport does play a role, you would think there would be some um, serious scholarship devoted to testing that claim, but not if it's a myth. If it is a, a sociological or political myth in the sense that we aren't inclined to want to test it we just need to believe it for other reasons because it 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 helps us call forth the kind of world that we want and that's the kind of um analysis that we should be bringing to to um, the ideals of international sport
1: well i don't know if we can end on a better conclusion uh, a better concluding statement on your book than that i do wonder and this is the last question i always ask what do you have next for us, Barbara? What is your next work that we can look forward to seeing?
0: <laughs> I am trying hard to finish a book on anti torture campaigns since 1945. And once I'm done with that, I'm going to switch gears completely. And, and I've, I've started working on a book on what I'm calling the love affair between Henry Kissinger and Joanne Law. So it's really about their very, very close relationship <laughs> in the 1970s. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to starting that book and really getting into it because it's going to be so much fun.
1: <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. That sounds great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We've thank you so much, talking- with uh, Barbara Keys, She's a professor of U.S. and international history at Durham University, and she is the editor and one of the authors in The Ideals of Global Sport, From Peace to Human Rights, from University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Uh, this has been Keith Rathbone coming to you from the New Books and Sports Network, and normally live at Macquarie, but tonight, 9 p.m. at my house. Thank you very much for joining me, Barbara.
0: Thank you so much, Keith. It's a pleasure uh, being on.